This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, welcome back to the program across the Sportsnet Radio Network. Samuel Cast on Sportsnet 360 as well. Don't forget, top of the hour, Bruce Boudreaux with a tour around the NHL and then a tour of the Oilers with Louis DeBrus coming up at the bottom of the hour. In the meantime, joined by someone who, as my producer Lance Kennedy just whispered in my ear, could not look more Boston if he was even sitting at the bar at Cheers. <laughs> The one and only Jimmy Murphy, editor-in-chief of Boston Hockey. You do look Boston, man. Look at you. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Pierre. I mean, I'll tell you, Jeff, and calling you my co-host, Pierre, already. Jeez. Shows you how much time I'm spending with Pierre lately. Um, That's okay. Uh, I had to pick this background, Jeff, because uh, my one of my favorite, yeah. probably three musicians, uh, Shane McGowan of the Pogues, passed away last week. And yes. So that's a tribute to him there. Uh, he, he, was, he was a treasure. I don't know how much you know about him, but... Uh, he liked his Jameson. I know a lot. He had a, he had a way yeah. with words. He really did. I'll tell you what. My favorite version of Waltzing Matilda is the one that the Pogues do. And his voice yep. on Waltzing Matilda to this day, and maybe just I'm getting older and softer, Murph, but it brings a tear to my eye every time I hear that song. I, I saw the Pogues a couple of different times uh, back in their heyday after Rum Sodomy and The Lash and Fall From Grace With God, and uh, they were tremendous live. I mean, there was one show where, you know, I'll be honest, he didn't show up, and the band had to play without him, and that was just kind of the risk sometimes it took with, with Shane McGowan. But I know, right? So, like, I'm with you, man. I was I was right there. I loved the Pogues and, and, and loved Shane McGowan. He was... Like he was, his lyrics were poetic. I th- I think his singing was was beautiful, really. As mm-hmm. as harsh as it as it might have been for some, I I thought he was a just a a, a tremendous singer, tremendous poet, tremendous that was musician. My dad's I think favorite, we lost uh, a lot. So too. good on you. Yeah, that was my my. Uh, my Is that dad. right? Eh? Yeah, he, he was a U.S. Marine, uh, Vietnam vet, and you know I actually tweeted this the other day uh, in the aftermath of him passing was. I played that song, that version for my dad, who had never heard that version. I don't know, we're going back to my college days or just out of college. And, you know, yeah. for war vets out there, they don't, you don't really talk about what you see in a war. Um, it just sort of stays with you and the people you served with. But he heard that and he opened up and he got teary eyed and it, you could see it moved him. Really? And he always said, that is the best version I've ever heard. You know, it's um, it's been said too. The closer you are to the front line, the less you talk about it afterwards. Does that mm-hmm. does that resonate with yes. uh, with him as well? Yeah, yeah, that was how it was. So that was the one time he opened up was when I played that song for him, and it, you know, it was one of those moments I'll always remember. Yeah. Listen, you're listening right now. You're watching right now. You're not familiar with Shane McGowan and the Pogues. Do yourself a favor. Listen to Waltzing Matilda. It is absolutely gorgeous. Okay, speaking of. Ugly and gorgeous all at the same time. Brad Marchand, <laughs> the captain of the Boston Bruins. How's that for a, for a transition? I don't know that anyone's yeah. ever going to call him a poet, although he is pretty sharp with the tongue and pretty good now that I think about it. So maybe one day we will call him a sort of a hockey yeah. poet in one sense. Uh, highly skilled, uh, has this uncanny ability to uh, upset the other team, other team's fan base. I mean, the reputation is well-earned. And I think it's jarring for a lot of people that you know can remember the... You know, the old 2011 Brad Marchand that was, you know, too buckled to do any interviews after they won the Stanley Cup. They had to keep him, you know, sequestered away from microphones and cameras because of how over-refreshed he had become on uh, numerous occasions after winning the Stanley Cup. How is Brad Marchand as a, as, a, as a captain on this Boston Bruins team so far? What's the audit some 25 games in? 
Well, I'll tell you something, Jeff. It's it's interesting because, you know, when they went in this little three-game skid they were on before this new three-game win streak uh, they've gone on, uh, the, the heat was starting to come down a bit on Brad. I mean, he's got obviously some huge shoes to, feel, uh, to fill, filling in for Patrice Bergeron as the captain and then Zane Chara before him. And it was quite interesting to see the way he handled – his first real test, you know, he had obviously the Milan Lucic incident was a big distraction for this team, whether they want to say it or not. But I thought he guided them through that well. And then when this losing streak hit, you know, I go back to last Thursday uh, in the game day skate before the Sharks game where they snapped out of the three game losing streak. I asked him, um, I said, you know, you told us uh, that there'll be times during a season that you'll draw on the experience that Patrice Bergeron, Zdeno Char had, maybe give them a call, shoot them a text, just, you know, pick their brain for advice and and kind of how would you navigate through this? And he said, yeah, I will, but we're not there yet. I got this. And I was like, wow, that was interesting. I don't know if I struck a nerve. I didn't mean to offend him, but he, he was very determined to prove that I'm going to lead them through this on my own. I've got this. And man, you know, they turned it around, and what he did Sunday with that natural hat trick, he literally put the team on his shoulders, and I thought that was his first defining moment as Bruins captain. You know, he's um, listen. There's uh, there's some 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 big C's that have been worn in, in Boston over the years, and I, I listen coming off of Patrice Bergeron, uh, who we all forget was only captain for a couple of seasons here. There was that transition between Chara and, and Nader Brad Marchand, um, but. I, I do wonder, and again, I'm not. I always got to be careful with the way that I say this because it makes it sound like I'm treating Patrice Bergeron as if he's somehow inconsequential. Meanwhile, he's one of the best 200 feet players the game has ever seen. But they haven't missed him. Like, it doesn't look like they miss Patrice Bergeron at all. And I never thought that I would be saying that. Like, I looked at, you know, Char left, I'm like, okay, well, at that point, he was on the shady side of the mountain. And you can understand, okay, the, the, the team has enough defensemen that this transition is still going to be smooth. I thought the transition was going to be harsh. I thought it was going to be like at least a few months of uh, wandering in the wilderness and where are we and who are we and, you know, how, who, what's our identity and, and who are these guys and how, who are we as a team? Murph, they haven't missed a beat. How shocked are you? Because I'm stunned. I'm with you. I am shocked. And I will point out, though, and I got to credit my my colleague, Mick Collagio, here in Boston. He's doing some stuff with us for Boston Hockey Now now. And he did write a column yesterday where the one area they are missing Bergeron and Krejci to an extent is face-offs in the defensive zone when they're trying to hold on to a lead and the other team has a goalie pulled. That has been a glaring weakness for the Bruins this season. We saw it in Toronto, what happened. Uh, so that's something they got to work on. But other than that, no, they haven't. And, you know, Martian brought this up in that same scrum I referenced just before this was, you know, it's just that culture they have. It, it, it's somehow when new players come in, whether it's youngsters, rookies, or it's veterans they sign or acquire and they come in, they give them the speech. They say, this is how we do things here. And, you know, if you've got questions on how you're going to fit in, come to me, but other, otherwise buy in now or you won't survive here. And I think that's how they've yeah. done it. It's just that there's so many new faces, right? But to come in and sort of have this atmosphere that hasn't changed and in, in sort of that mystique, so to speak, of the Chara days and the Bergeron days uh, has really helped them. And it, it's a mental thing for sure. And I think Brad Marchand has done a great job of conveying that to the new guys. And 
you know, he knows how much he benefited from that. I don't think Brad Marchand is a superstar player in the NHL if he didn't buy into what Bergeron taught him, what Mark Recchi taught him, or what Zanano Chara taught him. And he's done a great job of translating that to the new faces. Uh, all of this helps when you have a goalie tandem, the likes of which the Boston Bruins boast, whether it's Jeremy Swayman or Lena Solomark. Uh, I mean, it's it's pretty easy. That those are like two erasers. Oh, you made a mistake here. Let me just erase that there. No problem. We got it and get down the other end of the ice and let's get a couple of goals here. Um, has there, I mean, th- there's always been the whispers out there of, you know, you have this luxury. You could turn one of these guys into a couple of players or someone key up front. You want a Bergeron replacement? Hey, can I interest you in one of these two netminders? Has that quieted down in Boston yet? No, I think, you know what? They look at it at first. It, it's funny. I was just I was just talking to Pierre uh, before we got on about just goalie rotations and how you work it. And can it survive in the NHL? Yeah. Can you win a cup doing that? And, you know, there was a lot of whispers, and we know it. Jeff, you heard it as well. That they were listening on Almark, and they they pretty much admitted. And Almark admitted, "Hey, I don't even know if I'm going to be here." If you go back to when he won the Vesner Trophy and he was mm-hmm. doing his pre-ceremony media availability, he said, "It's really weird. I'm about to win the Vesna here, and yet I don't even know if I'm going to be with the Boston Bruins next season." Of course, they kept him, and the, the rumors are still following them. Obviously, with Edmonton having their issues and other teams having goalie issues, but I think you know Jim Montgomery said, "Why would we do that?" I mean, seriously, why would we do that where we can lean on a guy? We know no matter what, we have a guy to lean on. If one guy falters a bit, we can go to the other guy. And I thought a, a great example of how much faith they have in this goaltending tandem came last week uh, when Jim mm-hmm. Montgomery pulled Jeremy Swayman against Columbus in that game where they got embarrassed 5-2. to two, And it had no semblance on what Jeremy Swayman was doing in that game. But he was comfortable enough to do it that he knew that, yeah, Swayman's going to be ticked off because he's a competitor, but he's also going to understand that I'm just trying to spark the team. And the fact that they have that stability between the pipes and that stability between the coach and the goalies is huge right now. And I don't see any reason why they're going to veer away from it. Maybe you're going to get Swayman as we did just now, two games in a row when he came back and he started that game again after he was pulled, or you'll get all Mark a few games in a row here. But I just don't see them going with one guy and riding it. And they do that because they mm-hmm. know it works. You know, common wisdom, you might look at the Boston Bruins and say they've got to be looking for another center. And I think we're all looking at Lindholm in, in Calgary. Mm-hmm. Right-hand shot, expiring contract. You know, back in his draft year, Boston was trying to get into that position. to dra- I know it's a new regime now, and this isn't that, that draft year in New Jersey. But still, like they were trying to get in position to get him once upon a time. So one version of Boston management very much, you know, liked what, uh, what Lindholm brought to the table. We wonder if there's still an interest there. It would seem to fit. But do you think there's any chance? As crazy as this may sound, given, you know, McAvoy and Lindholm and Grizzlick, it's Mason Laurie looks good too, by the way. But don't sleep on that name. Is there any chance they go out fishing for another defenseman? Well, I can tell you, Jeff, that they have been. They already have been. And, you know, you talk about management looking at a guy that maybe they want to move up in a draft to get and have kept their tabs on that player. And to me, that player is Noah Hannafin in Calgary. We'll stick with the Flames there. I mean, hey, who knows? Maybe they can yeah. get him in a blockbuster, get both of those guys. But I know that they've kept tabs on him since Sweeney failed to get him in that famous or infamous for the Bruins 2015 draft. Um, he loves a guy, and he's always 
seen him as a fit in what he's trying to accomplish with the Boston Bruins. And he's he's accomplished plenty, obviously, without him. But I know that he would still like to add him there. And I think with the yeah. recent you know, talk out of Calgary that it's pretty much done between Hannafin and the Flames, if they could get a sign and trade, I think the Boston Bruins have to be at the front of the line there. Do they have the assets to do it? That's what I that's that what I wonder the, about. Like that that's well, a that's, that's a big deal. Right? Do they have the assets to pull that off? Well, I'll tell you, Jeff. Obviously, they don't have a first round pick coming up. Uh, there, I yep. think the following year they don't have a second. They've really kind of cleaned out the cupboard down below in terms of prospects and draft picks, because every year they're going for it, right? So it's it's hard to kind of maintain that uh, in the lower levels. It's hard to maintain that balance and still go for it every year. So I'm thinking. You know, if you look at it, you're going to have to get creative and it's going to have to be bodies on the roster right now for the Boston Bruins. And, you know, I, I kind of look mm. at a, a Matt Grizzlick or a Jake DeBrus. Could they be kind of dangled in any trade talks for a Hannafin or Lindholm, both pending UFAs? Mm. And if they could kind of sense, you know, if Calgary could get a sense that maybe these guys would stick with us past this season, who knows? Maybe you have a match there, but I think you're going to have to get creative and you're going to have to include bodies on the current Boston Bruins NHL roster just because of what's below that. And there, there really isn't much. Can you give me a hot 30 seconds on uh, Matthew Poitra? I'll tell you, hot 30 seconds. And look, I hate. We brought up this name already in this conversation, Patrice Bergeron. I'm not comparing them by any means, but what Whoa. I will compare, I know, I know, but I'm not compare. Uh, look, I'm not there to compare the players yet. What I will compare yeah. is the two rookies, and I got the pleasure of covering Bergeron throughout his whole career, and I remember very vividly when he came into camp uh, in the 03-04 season, and you know, didn't speak a word of English, and thank God for Marty Lapointe who guided him through that season and uh, was his billet family. Um, but I just remember the poise and the way he was able to weather storms and really bounce back, yeah. literally shift to shift. I see that in Poitier, and I think that's the thing that they've been impressed with the most is that just when it looks like maybe he's not ready for the NHL or maybe he's hitting that wall, the kid shines. He picks up a good face-off in the defensive zone, or he makes a nice assist. And, and the veterans on this team, I'll tell you, they look at him as an equal. And that's another thing going back to the culture we were saying is that they always make players, young and old, feel like equals. And Zanano Char started that. They've done that with Poitier, but they really do feel he's an equal because of the way he thinks the game, the questions he asks them in-game, on the bench, intermissions, or at practices. Uh, he's just, he wants to know the game. He wants to learn and learn and learn, and he immediately applies it. That's what struck me the most about Matthew Poitra. Awesome. Um, what are they marching for? And I ask myself the same question. Murph, thanks for letting us think about Shane McGowan for a couple of moments and great background. Great background, pal. Let's yeah. talk soon. All right. Have a good one. The great Jimmy Murphy from uh, Boston Hockey Now, editor-in-chief there. And a nice little tribute to Shane McGowan of the Pogues. Man, was I a huge fan. Uh, let's bring on our man, Matt Marchese. Time now for Line Change, presented by Sports Interaction, your homegrown sportsbook. Bet local, Matt Marchese. What is the chapeau you have on today, by the way? Uh, is it, is, it is a band. Uh, they are Shane Smith and the Saints. They are awesome. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Went to see. Good. I told. What's that mustache you have on there? Oh uh, the well, that's something. Um, it. I don't have the long hair anymore, so I got to keep something, Jeff. 
Oh, very good. All right. Got to look distinct. Gotta yeah, look distinct. that's it. Uh, okay. Kraken at the Canadians. A little Monday night hockey matchup. Uh, the puck line is Kraken minus yeah. one and a half. The Kraken are one and four in their last five road games. The Canadians are three and seven in their last 10 overall. The over is five and oh in Seattle's last five versus a team with a losing record. And the over is seven and three in the Canadians last 10 home games. Yeah, looking forward to this one. Rogers Monday Night Hockey, David Amber, your host, Colby Armstrong, Anson Carter, Justin Williams is your panel. And the thing about Seattle, when you watch them, one thing really stands out. Uh, with no Andre Burakovsky, with no Jaden Schwartz, this really does look like a depleted roster. Like, there are always those teams that can't afford to lose a couple of key guys. And we just talked to Jimmy Murphy about Boston. They lost, you know, their two top centers, and they're still okay. Um, you when you're a team like the Seattle Kraken, you cannot afford losses like Burakovsky and Jaden Schwartz as they try to to motor on. And from the Montreal side of things, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, I was reading Arpen Basu's piece uh, at the Athletic, and there's something interesting with five on threes with the Montreal Canadiens. So they've spent the Montreal Canadiens have spent this is stunning, just over three minutes playing five on three so far this season, zero goals. One shot, four attempted shots. Like, we didn't expect it to be a playoff season for the Montreal Canadiens. This is still going to be about growth and about learning, etc. It still seems like it's very much a young team who, even though they're on the five-on-three, are still trying to force things and do things quickly and haven't relaxed into being able to play an effective five-on-three so far um, at the NHL level. Seattle and Montreal tonight. Um, and Montreal just re-signing Samuel Montembeau, so now we wonder... What's going to happen with Caden Primo? We wonder what's going to happen with Jake Allen. Um, there have already been teams that have inquired about Jake Allen. Uh, it sounds as if the three goaltender situation in Montreal may be coming to an end sooner than later. We shall see. But uh, with Montembeau, they've said, this is one of our guys. We're going headstrong with Montembeau, and that's why he got the three-year contract. Extension should be an interesting one tonight. Seattle Kraken, Montreal Canadiens. Uh, also tonight, the Carolina Hurricanes and the Winnipeg Jets. Nino Niederreiter with a brand new contract. That will be Rogers Monday Night Hockey this evening. And that's Line Change, presented by Sports Interaction, your homegrown sports book, Bet Local. Gabby on the other side. We're talking to Bruce Boudreaux and a little tour around the NHL. Keep it here across the Sportsnet Radio Network, Sportsnet 360, and wherever you get your podcasts, folks. That's where I be. Hour two coming up. Fresh views on everything in the National Football League. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, welcome back to the program. Welcome to Hour 2. Coming up, bottom of the hour, we'll get on the Edmonton Oilers page. Louis DeBrusque will stop by. No room for error. No margin for error with the Edmonton Oilers. Every week, grinding, grinding. Need points out of every game. Climbing up the ladder. Trying to get themselves back into a playoff position. And Connor McDavid 
Uh, maybe looking to win another scoring title. That's going to be tough, too. Nonetheless, we'll get into all of this with uh, Louis DeBrus coming up at the bottom of the hour. In the meantime, uh, he's a man who really needs no introduction at all, but we'll give him in one anyway. Uh, NHL coach, NHL analyst with the NHL Network. You hear him uh, around these parts and elsewhere on NHL Network Radio as well. He is the one and only Bruce Boudreaux, and he joins me now. Gabby, how are you today, sir? I'm doing well. How are you today, Jeff? Uh, I'm good. You know, this is um, this is the uh, this is going to be a really obvious statement, but you can you can take it a lot deeper than I can because you've been there before. It's really hard to win in the NHL. So to kick off the show today, Elliot and I were talking about the Buffalo Sabres and how they're you know, even though expectations were high for the Sabres this year, what they're finding out is even if you think you're at a certain point, this game can humble you quickly because it's hard to win in the NHL. Uh, Bruce, how hard is it really to win in the National Hockey League? You've been there. You've coached it. You've played in the NHL. Give us a sense. Well, I mean, there's never, never a gimme game. I mean, you may think there's a gimme game. Sometimes, oh, we'll win that, we'll win that. But, I mean, every team, if you look, especially this year, I mean, how many times do you, if you were a better, I mean, you think, oh, this is a cakewalk, we got this game, and then you read the next day that they lost 5-1 or, or what have you. I mean, Columbus is a perfect example. I mean, they went 11, 11 games without a win. Then they started, and they're playing good teams. Then all of a sudden they start winning, beating all of these teams. San Jose, when they lost 10-1, 10-1, back-to-back type games, uh, you thought they were never going to win another game. And now all of a sudden they've won five or six games. So, I mean, it is so tough to win, which is what gets me mad. As a matter of fact, just listening to a show and um, before you came on, where they said, well, you know, it doesn't really matter. This isn't the time that it matters. It only matters in the playoffs. I don't think anywhere near enough credit is given to how hard it is to get there. It's the only league in the world that, you know, 50%, more than 50% of the teams don't make the playoffs at all. There's no, you know, I mean, uh, there's nothing. So it is tough to get to the playoffs in the National Hockey League. And... And, they, like, I mean, it's an accomplishment to get there. But, I mean, it's it's unbelievable to win, but it's an accomplishment just to get there because it's too tough. It's, it's really tough. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough physically. It's tough mentally as well. I mean, that's why your mix of players has to be so very specific. Um, and, you know, I, I, I want to sort of dovetail this into a conversation about, about Minnesota because what we're seeing now – with the new coach, with John Hines in, Dean Evason um, uh, loses his job last week. Um, the Minnesota Wild haven't lost a game. And all of a sudden, they've killed the last 10 of 11 penalties against them. And we know how bad the penalty kill has been in Minnesota. All of a sudden, the goaltenders are stopping pucks. And listen, we've talked about it before, about how closely related your goaltender is to your head coach and your head coach's future um, specifically, um, one of the things that's come up here is, is this legitimate or is it, quote-unquote, the dead cat bounce? Like, whenever a new coach comes in, generally the team sort of snaps to attention. we got to audition for the new coach. we got to put our best foot forward, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How legitimate is that? Like, the new coach comes in. I mean, you've done this. You've taken over teams. I We all remember what you did with the Washington Capitals coming in from Glenn Hanlon. Um, how much does the team differ when the new boss shows up? behind the bench 
Well, I mean, it, there's definitely a lot of times a bump, and the reason I think it is 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 um, that when you're at the end of your tenure as a coach, or when it's perceived at the end of your tenure, that the social media gets to it, and and you're in the press all the time. Everything is negative around the arena. You don't feel like going to the rink, not because the coach isn't making it, trying to make it as fun, but you can see the stress in his eyes. You can see the uh, the stress in his voice, but there's no fun. Now, once he gets fired or let go or whatever the term you want to use, then all of a sudden everybody's free again. I mean, it, there's there's a little bit, you know, you, you have that initial, uh, I'm sorry, the players, uh, uh, we let them down type thing. Then all of a sudden you've got a free – a free reign. You're uh, um, you're starting from blank. There's nobody uh, against you right now. So I mean, everything's positive in the room, and so I think you get that positive outlook. I've watched the Minnesota games, and since uh, since uh, Dean got let go and Bob got let go, that I mean, all of a sudden they've got more jump in their step. They're playing like they did a little bit last year. The goaltenders, maybe there was a lot of negative stuff on the goalies and now all of a sudden they're coming back to form and when the goalies are coming back to form your penalty killing is going to come back to form because a lot of times that's one of the big differences is your goalie's not making that big save uh when you're on the penalty kill but the penalty killers look way more aggressive they look way more confident and it's the same group they're doing pretty well the same things i mean um and so it's the, the biggest difference I've noticed so far is the younger guys are playing a lot better. Boldy scored a couple goals. Rossi scored a couple goals. Faber's yeah. playing a little bit better. So I don't know if there was ever a problem with the younger guys in the room or they weren't giving them the credit. But these young guys, it's a new look on life for those guys. And so they're, and they're taking advantage of it right now. You know, it, it it is really interesting too the way that the Minnesota like the, the Minnesota Wild are trying to do one of the most difficult things in hockey, and that is ice a competitive team, a team that makes the playoffs, a team that hopes to do at least some damage in the playoffs as well, while they have fifteen million dollars of dead cap space that they can't use. I mean, it, it must feel like you know, it must be like, you know, skating with your with your laces untied. Like, that's the sort of disadvantage they go into every season with. And they're going to do it again next year until they finally get some relief and, and some cap space back after the buyouts of, of Parisi and Suter. To me, it's it's it, it might be the hardest thing you ask any team to do at the beginning of the year. We're taking away $15 million of cap space, and we expect you to be competitive. Can you give us some perspective on that, Bruce? Well... You know what, I can give you a, a little bit on the reasoning, I think, uh, why they did this, is is they had had a great draft, and they got Boldy at number 12, and they got Rossi, I think, at number 8, and they're thinking, okay, if we lose Suter and, and uh, Breeze, they will at least have these guys that they're going to be really good players, and they're going to um, and they're gonna be on entry-level deals. So for a few years, we're not going to really need that cap that cap space we're going to be able to uh, uh you know uh, get away with it and they had a really good draft they drafted Dewar and Duhame and all of these guys and they thought that they'd still be yeah. really relatively low so they could get away with that uh, but in the real world you know when you're taking away 
um, three $5 million players uh, or two $8 million players or even if it's uh, five $3 million players, that's a lot of NHL talent you're not allowed to get because of your being strapped for cash. But, I mean, uh, yeah. they didn't do it because they just didn't think that these guys were good guys. Suter could still play. And, I mean, he can still play. Zach had 20 goals last year. Um, they thought they could do this and and cut bait, I think, and then all of a sudden still have these young guys come in. And, and for a year, it looked good. But when they struggle, now we blame it on the cap. But uh, um, it's it's if these the young guys are continue to play like they played the last three games, they won't be talking about the cap too much and until it comes to March when they yeah. need to make a trade. I think anyway. Uh let me ask you about the tr- let me ask you about the Toronto Maple Leafs and uh came back to tie it against the Boston Bruins on Saturday, Austin Matthews with the goal. Uh, and then a blown wheel by William Nylander, Brad Marchand with the overtime winner, and the Boston Bruins escape with a pair of points, and the Maple Leafs pick up a single digit. Now, a lot has been made about the Maple Leafs and how they've only won five games in regulation. And as we all know, there is no three-on-three overtime in the playoffs. There is no shootout in the playoffs. So you look at regulation wins as a pretty good indication of where a team is at. Uh, I know a lot of Maple Leafs players will say, hold on a second here. We've got half of our defense on the shelf. Uh, give us a break. We're, we're hanging on and we're trying to grind through all of this. How do you see the Toronto Maple Leafs right now, given that there's only been five wins in regulation, Bruce? Well, I mean, the number itself is alarming a little bit that they've only got five wins. I mean, but the one thing I, I see with the Leafs all the time is they play to their uh, opposition. So, I mean, if they're playing the Bruins, I mean, they will play a great game. And the two games against the Bruins this year, both been overtime and and shootout uh, games. But, I mean, the same thing when they play to Chicago, they play down to Chicago. And so, I mean, I think they're one of the teams that thinks, okay, we're going to make the playoffs, let's get to the playoffs, and then we'll play. But, I mean, um, uh, that's why I think that, they struggle and they don't play the same way like say the Rangers right now are playing great against everybody and anybody that plays the Rangers is in for is in in for a tough game it seems but the Leafs play to whoever the level of of who they're playing against we've seen them at home play teams that are much uh, inferior to them but they've been really close games because it just doesn't seem that they either get up for those games or not but they've Anytime you see them play a, a, a good team, they play good as well. Uh, take Florida, for instance, or, or whoever that they played this week in Boston, and, and it, it doesn't matter. They, they will be, they will be tough, a tough out for anybody, I think. Let me, um, Bruce, with Bruce Boudreau, um, let me ask you about hitting in the NHL right now. Uh, I'm not sure if you had a chance to watch the Philadelphia-New Jersey game, but there was a, a moment... Uh, it looked like it was going to be an icing, and Luke Hughes was giving chase for New Jersey, kind of led up at the end, thinking it was going to be an icing. Garnet Hathaway uh, just just crushed him, like with a, with a with a huge body check. Thankfully, Luke Hughes was okay. Hathaway, after the referees consulted, got a match in a game uh, for it. And John Tortorella afterwards talked about how hitting has kind of been taken out of the game, so players 
don't expect to be hit at all times. I'm paraphrasing towards here, but you know what I'm going for. He's saying that hitting's been taken out, so players aren't prepared for hits like they were, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, Do you find that as a phenomenon now in the the NHL, that guys aren't prepared to absorb contact like they were 20 or 30 years ago? Uh, I really do agree with that. I mean, it's uh, it's one of the reasons, like I think players um, going for pucks get, when they get hit from behind, they're they're so shocked. I mean, they don't protect themselves, and when there is a big hit, there's a fight. I mean, it's almost like you're not allowed to get hit. Like I saw that pathway hit on Luke Hughes, and yeah. Luke did let up, and and I, I was shocked that it was five in a game um, that he got that because to me it was bang bang and it, it you know but I mean you've got to be we used to be able to think okay we're getting crunched here and we'd protect ourselves our elbows would be up and everything else when we went into the corner because we knew something was coming or your stick would automatically be up but nowadays um, it seems like players don't expect to get hit at all and when they get hit, it's, hey, how dare you hit me type thing. And uh, <laughs> I think that's the one thing, as much as I love hockey, the one thing that bugs yeah. me because it used to be yeah. a lot more physical. Who is the, just as an aside, Bruce, who is the best, who, who is the best body checker you ever saw? Oh, my goodness. Um, I think that I've seen the most dangerous one was Scott Stevens. Um, yeah. uh, thank God I didn't get a chance. Or, well, I would have loved to have played against him, but I just wouldn't have went up the middle of the ice. That's uh, that's for <laughs> sure. But uh, uh, every every highlight you see, and the one thing about Scott, when I had him as an assistant coach, you know, like he never, you know, when you got hit, there was no mercy because he he'd say, "Hey, I was hit just that as hard as those guys were as I'm that I'm hitting," or I would. I would take yeah. a punch as much, as much as give it. So, I mean, there was that, like, it was, you know, you were going to gonna go out there. If you were a guy like Scott, it was hit or be hit. And uh, um, and it was no give or take. And that uh, I really liked that about the game back then. Uh, um, I mean, I think it's obviously faster and, and quicker and they're more skilled and everything else. but And they're bigger. Uh, but I don't think there's that physicality that used to be in the game. The, the game the other night, uh, Florida and Ottawa, that was like a take oh. back of an older game. Like, I mean, with penalty minutes and, yeah. and you had to you had to look out every time you got on the ice because people were coming at you. And that, was, that was fun to watch. I mean, uh, to me anyway. It- well, it was, and I think one of the more, one of the most interesting things about that was Garrett Rank throwing everybody out uh, on the ice, throwing them, them all out of the game. Announced a couple of penalties, that, and everybody else on the ice gets a gets a gets a game misconduct. I don't know that I've seen that before. Well, not in the salary cap NHL, uh, an official throwing everybody on the ice out of the game just in order to calm things down. Bruce, did you have a chuckle at Garrett Rank? Well, not only did I have a chuckle, but the first thing that came to mind was uh, the movie Slapshot when the referee says, you, you're yep. gone, you're gone, you're gone, you're gone. Like, <laughs> he just said, like, there was the same kind of thing. Like, I think Garrett didn't know who was on the ice. There was a lot of, a lot of guys, he's, I don't know their names, so I'm just kicking everybody out. 
Uh, and and you say that as a as a slap shot alum, Gabby. <laughs> yeah, but that I I sometimes I hate the way my mind works, but that's the first thing that came to my mind. I'm watching this guy. And he goes, everybody else got ten minutes. This guy, <laughs> and I thought, okay, that's a slap shot ref. So anyway, that's so I think. Okay, you. you you, you've opened the you've opened the door to slap shot. So for for my last question for you, I, I I've always wondered if this was a true story or not. So um, Bruce Boudreaux uh, opening on ice scene on uh, in the movie Slap Shot. You're there when the goal is scored, coming out from around the net, and you do the big celebration. You have the big the big smile. Is it true that during the filming of that scene, you skated circles around the net to make sure that you got in the shot? pretty big ham back then and uh um the director who was george roy hill he said he said yeah. listen we're this scene is all based on on how bad the charlestown chiefs are so we're going to focus on the net and everything's going to be the the goalie either making saves or or you know everything going in on them and so i said okay if that's where they're going to make the scenes i'm not going to do anything but skate around the net and that's what I did. I skated around the net. I think I got in two scenes on the thing. And then they see me on the post when they score. And I'm going, uh, you know, yeah. and they see my whole face. And I thought that was pretty cool <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> I just love it. Uh, I just love the story. Um, you have some great ones, Gabby. And it's always a delight catching up. You be well. And we'll, uh, we'll check back soon, pal. <laughs> All right. Have a great day. Thank you. There he is, uh, the great Bruce Boudreaux, uh, Gabby, ladies and gentlemen, and yes, in that opening on ice scene where Denis Lemieux is getting peppered by shots, that is Gabby skating around the net with the big celebration. Matt Marchese, I think it was Hyanna Sports, I believe, was that team. You're a slap shot aficionado. Was it Hyanna Sports? I believe so, yes. Yeah, that team. I believe so, yeah. Okay, I think I may have, may have that one right You know that movie better than I do anyway. For sure you do. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. There are some. There are a lot of people that, that know it a lot better than I do. But there was a while there. Well, I remember City TV for the longest time. And this would be back like when you know little Jeffy was in high school, uh, where they would they would play it um, every Christmas Eve. <laughs> and I remember I would stay up late to watch. I know, right? <laughs> like, I would stay up late to watch Slapshot. Even into my twenties too. City TV used to always run Slapshot on Christmas Eve for some reason because it was thought, long well, hey, and they didn't have programming. Cool, but it's well, it's not exactly a Christmas movie, but I I'll take it. I mean, I, I love it. You know, there's a dog that saved Charlestown. Like, how many times have you seen the movie? Well, I used to watch it at least once a year because I'd always watch it on Christmas Eve. That's a hell of a, a Christmas. Like, of all, like, again, of all the movies, I mean, there are worse that are yeah. have nothing to do with Christmas, but Slapshot really does not resonate with me and Christmas. Just like <laughs> people that think that Die Hard is a Christmas movie is ridiculous. Uh, that's a whole other. That's a whole other conversation. Shout out but, David um, Amber. I'd, I, I, I'll watch. It. I know Da loves that. <laughs> um, by the way, Da a couple of games tonight. It's Monday nights. Rogers Monday night hockey.
It sure is. It's Seattle and Montreal. It's Carolina and Winnipeg. Winnipeg with a uh, Nino Niederreiter with a shiny new contract in his hip pocket. Hey, what's uh, what's spicing your chili these days? Like, what's interesting to you coming off of this weekend? Because I can't help but think about this Arizona-Washington game tonight. I don't know why I'm so fixated on this. But beating all these defending Stanley Cup, well, not defending, beating all these recent Stanley Cup champions in a row to me is fascinating, whether it's Colorado or Tampa or Vegas or St. Louis and tonight Washington. Um, they're going through all the recent Cup winners here, Maddie. Yeah, and and doing a pretty good job of it. Four four wins in a row. And you mentioned Connor Ingram, like he, that story. He played he played pretty well at the end of last year and uh, decently enough anyway. And coming into this year, and it was part of the conversation we had last year with Arizona was it was about. Carol Vimelka and Carol, how long is Carol Vimelka going to yeah. be with this team and and all of that? And now you look at it and go, wow, Connor Ingram looks like a guy that they can't even get on that. He's starting again tonight against the Capitals. It's his fifth start in a row, and he's he's been excellent. And it's kind of like that conversation that we had about Charlie Lindgren last week, a guy that comes in, you don't really expect too much out of. Yeah, he's a good goalie, but you know what's the team in front of him? How are they going to play? And all around, yeah. it's been. It's a, been a really impressive performance. Uh, David and I had this conversation on Friday, um, and he asked me about Arizona and their playoff chances. And I look at that roster, and you look at, you know, you talk about Michael Carcone, 11 goals. Uh, Matias Michelli has had a, another, he's been great, and he was very good last year as yeah. well. Sneaky, you know, called their conversation for him last year. And then you've got your Logan Cooleys and Nick Schmaltz and Clayton Keller, and, you know, it. it and Sean Dursey's been a great addition to the team. They're a really fun yep. team to watch, Jeff. And I've been really impressed. And, you know, you and I talked about it a little bit. They've got all these draft picks, and they don't have enough contracts to hand out for these draft picks. They can go out, and, and it doesn't have to be a, a big contract or anything, but maybe there's a young player that doesn't, you know, is not eligible for a big extension yet that they may have their eyes on or somebody that has, you know, some term that's on good money that they can deal assets for. I think Arizona is really interesting. Yeah, I, th I think the Noah Hannafin noise is legit with the Arizona Coyotes. Um, I I do wonder uh, how deep the conversations went when Edmondson was knocking on all the doors, uh, looking for net mining. How the conversations went around Karel Vimelka, because uh, I would imagine that would have happened. Um, but I'm with you, and I I can't remember the last time I said this, but. Are we looking at a situation where Arizona Coyotes are going to be buyers at the deadline? Well, they have the assets to do it, Jeff. And that and that's they have the picks. Well, yeah, they do. And and the young player ass I think they're I think they're less inclined to deal younger player assets rather than the picks because they have a plethora of the picks and we know that there's they they want some you know, they want to be able to keep costs down when it comes to player contracts. So having those younger players who are already in the system that aren't making as much money is probably a benefit to the Coyotes at this point. And maybe whoever may buy them or move the team or whatever. But I think that is also part of the conversation is I don't necessarily think they want to deal young players, but they certainly won't have a problem with dealing picks because, again, they've got like a thousand in the next three drafts. Hey, you want to hear something interesting? Yes, there's I do. a few things here. So Dom Lassitian, do you know Dom? Uh, He's a writer at the Athletic. Yeah, I know. I know who. I've never met Dom, but I, I've seen his work. Smart guy, like real, real smart guy. So he uh, he just published. I think it was today. No, two. Yeah, today he just published um, Awards Watch. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we're past the quarter mark. So for the heart trophy, and again, this is all based on not just, you know, boxcar numbers, but also um, digging a little bit deeper um, behind your, uh, your traditional published numbers. Um, for the heart trophy, most valuable player, one, two, and three, he has, and again, it's uh, sort of rating between offensive rating and defensive rating. Number one, he has Kale McCarr. Number two, Quinn Hughes. Number three, Nikita Kucherov, David Pasternak, four, and five, Sam Reinhardt. Is that okay. The, is that the Sam Reinhardt in a in a park. contract year by any chance? That's <laughs> Sam Reinhardt in a contract year who's doing what you're supposed to do in a contract year out of boy Sammy. Uh, Norris Trophy is interesting as well, offensive and defensive rating, and then the net rating. Uh, Norris, best defense, Kale McCarr, Quinn Hughes, and then Eric Carlson, who he points out has had a really positive impact defensively for the Pittsburgh Penguins, regardless of the offense. Uh, number four, Noah Dobson. Number five, uh, number five, Brady Shea mm. of the Carolina Hurricanes. Here we're going to start to get real interesting now. Selkie Trophy, best defensive forward. Number one, Alexander Barkov. Yep. Number two, Sam Reinhardt. Number three, you ready for this one, Maddie? I'm ready. Just going by the numbers, sir. Just going by the numbers. Tyler Sagan. Not a name that I would have had in there. (laughs) I know, right? Followed by Mika Zibanejad and William Carlson. Tyler Sagan in at number three. And then, and here's the one... Here's the one that I know is going to stun you. Again, you can you can read Dom's work at The Athletic. He's, he's a smart guy. Um, Calder Trophy. I mean, everyone's picking Connor Bedard to win this thing in a walk, right? Mm-hmm. And offensively, he should. But defensively, eh, Connor Bedard is still a work in progress. You know who's got number one? Brock Faber of the Minnesota Wild. With a net rating of three. That's how strong defensively he's been. Followed by another defenseman, Luke Hughes. And then at number three, Joseph Wall. Hmm. The Toronto Maple Leafs. Very interesting. Followed by Tyson Forrester and Dmitry Voronkov. Anyway, it is a really interesting read with some, you know, very different names. I mean, Vesna Trophy, he's got Aiden Hill, one, Thatcher Demko, and then we just talked about Connor Ingram. He's in at, uh, at number three as well. So... Give this one a read. It's uh, it's an interesting one, Maddie. Um, Tyler Sagan, third. Yeah. So the Dallas it, Stars. It's interesting that you had when you talked about the the Norris and Carlson and the impact he had defensively. So on Friday we had Josh Yoey on, and I asked him about the offensive yeah. production and how much of it early on was about you know getting acclimated with new teammates and you know also kind of figuring out that you don't have to be the guy in Pittsburgh right now if you're Eric Carlson to carry the Mm -hmm. load offensively. And he pointed to, he goes, Eric Carlson knows what people are saying about him and and the defensive warts. And it's like he almost went out of his way to be a much better defensive player earlier on in the season. So it's interesting that the numbers reflect that as well for Carlson because he's obviously made strides defensively. And let's face it, that team in San Jose wasn't that great last year. So I don't put a lot of that on him. Um, but Jeff, yeah. we, uh, we, I did want to ask yes. you something cause we were talking about, uh, before the show, all-star game stuff. Um, we wanted to <laughs> yes. talk about, cause whenever we talk about all-star games, so many people will, will talk about John Scott 
and his all-star appearance. And I know there was something that you wanted to talk about. 2016, yes. No, it's, it's, it's just that I have such mixed feelings about the whole thing. Uh, not for, and this, listen, this, this whole project was started with uh, me and Greg Wyshynski on the old MVSW podcast. And once they put the balloting out to the fans, it's like, okay, fans, this is, like, this is in the era, this is in the era of Bodie McBoatface, right? Remember? Mm-hmm. Hey, we're just going to put it out to the people and see how they vote. Well, you put it out online, people are going to have fun with it. And we just thought it should be a celebration for a role that, like, honestly, like, I, I don't know about Greg, but honestly, I, for me, the John Scott campaign was to celebrate a role that was evolving out of the NHL mm-hmm. and that wasn't going to be around much longer. And shouldn't we send someone to the All-Star game as a tip of the hat to that role in the NHL? The league didn't look at it that way. <laughs> Shocking. And um, <laughs> one of my managers didn't think about it that way. <laughs> and I remember doing the old um, uh, World's Greatest Pre-Pre-Game Show, uh, Hockey Central Saturday with uh, John Shannon and PJ Stock, Paul Bromby was producing. And I remember this is when USA Today published the first results of voting. And um, it had John Scott in a landslide. And I remember like, Greg texted me right away. Like, oh, I had no idea that this was going to catch on, uh, so so huge, and it became like legitimately. I mean, Maddie, you remember this mm-hmm. was the number one news story. Oh, this yeah. is all anybody could talk about, all anyone could talk about, and one of my managers was not very thrilled with us talking about this as much as we did on that Hockey Central Saturday show, and told us to stop while the show was going on. I think I remember who that called was, actually. His, <laughs> called called me into, he's no longer with us, uh, called me into his office to tell me how I'm ruining the All-Star game and I need to stop now right away. Like, I honestly, I thought I was losing my job. If I'm being I honest, remember, Jeff, I remember calling. It, it takes a lot more yeah. than that to ruin the All-Star game. At this point, like it that might make it better. <laughs> yeah, it, it ended up being great. I mean, I know it was sort of awkward, and you know, John didn't necessarily mix well with a lot of people from the National Hockey League at that event in Nashville. Uh, but fans loved it, mm-hmm. and it became an enduring memory in the the history of the All Star Game. Anyway, I uh, I'm sort of mixed on all of it because I had a lot of fun doing it, and it's gonna go down as far as like when when I'm all done in this industry, it's gonna be one of those things like, oh yeah, wasn't he the guy that helped get John Scott to the All Star game back in 2016? Um, but yeah, I, I really did legitimately think that that was gonna get me fired. I remember making that drive home after the Saturday, saying, um, should I apply at the post office? I hear they're busy around Christmas time. Maybe they could use some extra work. Uh, with that, speaking of the All-Star Game, we'll let you know the 2024 Rogers NHL All-Star Game. Uh, it'll be an expanded to a three-day event with the NHL All-Star Thursday going at Scotiabank Arena featuring the Tim Hortons NHL All-Star Player Draft. Yes, that returns. Uh, the NHL Alumni Man of the Year honoring the 1967 Maple Leafs and the Canadian Tire PWHL 3-on-3 Showcase. By the way, PWHL at their Utica pre-camp training camp are uh, are going with the two-minute major penalty, Maddie. So you like serve it. a full two minutes, so the team can score as many goals as they can, and uh, no icing for the penalty kill. Puck comes all the way back down, trying to really put a premium on power plays. That's what they're doing at the 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 uh, the, the, the pre-camp camp in Utica. 
We'll see what happens when the official rules package comes out, but that's what the PWHL is, is about right now. So there's a three-on-three showcase uh, at the All-Star. Tickets to NHL All-Star Thursday go on sale Tuesday, December the 5th. That is tomorrow, 10 a.m. Eastern on Ticketmaster. You can catch all the action, including the Rogers NHL All-Star game on Sportsnet. How about that one? Okay, we'll take a break. Louis DeBrusque uh, comments on the Edmonton Oilers in moments. Uh, another huge week in oil land as they try to climb the ladder, climb the ladder back to a playoff position. Can they get there? And if so, how do they do it? Louis DeBrusque comments in moments across the Sportsnet Radio Network, simulcast on Sportsnet 360. It's a Merrick show. Back in a moment. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, so file this one under tweets you don't want to read. Eric Francis, 24 minutes ago. Markstrom makes a miraculous save in practice, but injured his hand doing so and immediately left the ice. And then follows it up with plenty of blood pouring from what appeared to be Markstrom's finger. Oh, oh. hope he's okay. Uh, with that, uh, we'll turn our attention away from the Calgary Flames and to the Edmonton Oilers with our good friend Louis DeBrusque uh, from the NHL on Sportsnet and Hockey Night in Canada. Louis, how are you, pal? I'm doing well. I just heard that about Markstrom. That's too bad. It kind of reminded me back in the day when I was playing, I think it was Gino Cavallini that locked the shot oh, and yeah. lost a part of his finger. Remember that? For the St. Louis Blues at the time? Yeah, I do. And, yeah, uh, yeah you know what? Um, hopefully it's nothing major with Markstrom, but uh, unfortunately that's uh, that's part of it, right? Sometimes when you're forced to make a save or you put yourself in a position, um, you see it all the time, goaltenders, yeah. even though they have all that equipment on, it doesn't protect everything. Yeah, that's a fine example of it. Yeah. And you hope that Markstrom's okay, certainly. You know, before we get into, you know, the, the week coming up for the Edmonton Oilers, and they've got a couple of days here to um, without games to, to, to practice and get ready for the game against Carolina, um, does it feel... So we were talking about rivalries last week and, you know, running down, you know, how intense it is between even teams like Anaheim and Arizona. Like, those are nasty games. Um, and, like, there's really great, you know, rivalries sort of all around the NHL. But does it feel that since the playoff series between Edmonton and Calgary that the rivalry has sort of, I don't know, maybe quieted down a little bit? <laughs> yeah, you know, I know what you're saying. I, I think that uh... – you know, obviously the the first matchup between them this year was the Heritage Classic, so that had a whole new meaning in itself. It was a whole different kind of level of yeah. intensity when you're getting prepared for that. So that takes away from it a bit. Although I thought the game was a solid game by both sides, and uh, you know it was a good showing. But yeah, I understand what you're saying. Sometimes it just doesn't necessarily carry over. It could be scheduling too. Um, you know, there's been some yeah. weird scheduling where you see a team a couple of times during the year, you don't see them again until the end of the year. So you've got the whole season to kind of lose that uh, competitive edge when you go up against each other. But I still think there is a a certain tone every time that the two teams meet, in my opinion. But I know what you're saying. It doesn't seem to have that bite that it had with the Kachucks and the Cassians. And you know what? I'll say that. Sometimes personnel. Yeah. Sometimes personnel are what sure. spark a rivalry. No question about it. And I think that they've lost a little bit of that. 
so the Edmonton Oilers, uh, the last time we saw them, they had uh, ripped off three wins, uh, Anaheim, Vegas, and Winnipeg, and they will face off against the Carolina Hurricanes on Wednesday. That's what greets the Edmonton Oilers and then the Minnesota Wild uh, on Friday. And don't look now, but all of a sudden, Minnesota is playing some great hockey under John Hines. You know, Elliot and I were talking to kick off the show, Louie, about margins of error for the Edmonton Oilers and how they've used up all their clunkers. They can't afford to have any more losing streaks. You know, it does it very much feel like they need to get points out of every game or almost every game if they're going to make up any ground in the Western Conference? It's a good conversation, and I know that it's, it's obviously something that a lot of people are talking about. I do know that Chris Knobloch and his coaching staff right now aren't focused on that even as much as the players. I think they felt the players when they first took over Paul Stockley and Chris, when they came on board, that that was kind of the narrative in the room. They were looking at the the schedule. They were looking at what was ahead of them. They were looking at what type of a season they had to put together in their minds to try and make the playoffs. And I think what um, Chris said that they tried to do was break it down into segments. It's the only way you can do it, Jeff. If you look too far ahead and you're worried about making the playoffs, I think it was you that gave me that, uh, I think it was you that gave me a quote years ago, similar, a reverse kind of thing. You can miss the playoffs trying to win the Stanley Cup. I'm pretty sure it was you that told me that one yeah. time. And it's the same situation here where if you're looking ahead and you're so worried about what type of a season you're going to have, you're not taking care of the business directly in front of you. And I think that's one thing that the coaching staff here has really tried to implement. Anytime there's a coaching change, you, you, you take a small picture, you're looking at it from each shift, each period, each game, and that's the mentality forward. And, you know, listen, I, I understand where you're coming from, and I do think that the players understand what they have to do. But at the same time, if you can break it down and just look at the task at hand ahead of you, that's the only way you can really approach the game because you have to take it one game at a time. So it, it does very much appear, Louis, that uh, Connor McDavid is healthy and he's over yeah. whatever injury he had. Now, there was a, I mean, listen, Elliot and I trafficked in this too, so I'm not trying to remove myself from this equation. Like, I'm, I'm part of it. But there was, a, there was a theory, okay, and it involved Connor McDavid untucking his jersey. And we know that Connor McDavid is a jersey tuck guy. And the theory was he had untucked his jersey because he's wearing extra protection to pad an area of his body that is particularly sensitive. And then all of a sudden, we saw the tuck back, and we saw what was it, like 15 points in five games <laughs> out, of, out of or three games out of out of Connor McDavid. Uh, should we put the two things together: the uh, the retucking of Connor McDavid's jersey and the increased production? Because I'll be honest, Elliot and I trafficked in that one. If only that's what it took, right? <laughs> that little subtle change, but no, I don't disagree with you. You know what? I agree with you and Elliot a hundred percent. And listen, I'll say it right here. I know he was dealing with things. Uh, I mean, I don't know exactly what he was yeah. dealing with. They were very quiet about it. He didn't use it as an excuse. He didn't talk about it at all, which I think is a big part of his character is that he's not going to use that as an excuse, but you could tell his game was different mm-hmm. a bit. You could tell not just the physical part of it, but the mental part of it, getting prepared yeah. every day, not being able to do some of the things that he's used to being able to do on the ice. So he had to change the way he played it. And he was still a very valuable player. I mean, he's still one of the best players in the league at 70, 80%. But there's no question there's another gear there. He's starting to feel 100%. You can tell by, number one, the smile on his face. Number two, the way he's skating. For me, that's the, the major one. And number three, he's starting to do what Connor McDavid does. And I think that you know, they all go together and saying that he's feeling much better, and that's a great sign for the Oilers, so it couldn't have come at a better time. 
um, with the hole that they dug for themselves at the start of the year, clawing back out of that game by game, um, he certainly led the way with his play as of late, no question about that. But, yeah, I agree. I think that uh, I don't know if that was the case, trying to hide something, but at the same time, I don't think he was trying to pretend like there wasn't something wrong. We saw the games. We saw the collisions. Yeah. We saw the injury. We know something was there, and, and uh, credit to him to play through it and continue to get better, and now he looks like he's at the top of his game. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna try something here. I'm gonna I'm gonna see if it works. Connor McDavid right. is the best player in the world. All right, Connor McDavid's the best player in the world. And then right there, just underneath Connor McDavid is Leon Dreisaitl. And we know it's been a challenging start to the season, despite the most recent winning streak for the Edmonton Oilers. Yet through all of it, through all of it, and I know McDavid was uh, has been injured and he's healthy now. Through all of it, can you not make the argument? that their most consistent and best player through all the injuries and all the losing and all of it was Zach Hyman. 100%. I said it, actually. We did a nice pack on him with, uh, you know, 10 of his goals that uh, were really, really close to the neck because that's where he scores a lot of his goals. But you know what? It's, it's, yeah. it's the complete game, though, Jeff. It really is. It's the work ethic. Um, it never changes. It's the discipline and detail the hard grinding in the corners, the driving to the front of the net, you're constantly in contact with other defense and you're constantly battling with players. Yeah, there's there were times when the puck wasn't going in for Zach too, where he was, you know, beating it square at times. You could tell everybody was grabbing that stick a little bit tight. That's just the nature of the beast. But all those other things that I mentioned previously almost make him criticism proof. They really do. Because you watch him and you say it's only a matter of time before things turn around for him. And he's been off to a great start this year. There's one little tiny lapse I think the whole team had, but overall I agree with you. He has yeah. been the most consistent guy. And I would say after the first five games for Evander Kane, he's found his game too. And he's another guy that's really exploded and started to put the puck in the net. Probably what we thought we were going to see last year from Evander. Um, coming in as a full season, his first full season, but obviously a couple, one really gruesome injury with a cut wrist and then um, obviously dealt with some broken ribs as well um, throughout the latter part of the year that missed some time into the playoffs. Just wasn't the same physical guy that um, he needs to be to be successful. But those two guys have been able to kind of weather a little bit of the storms, find their games, and now that Connor is starting to play the way he's playing, Leon's starting to find his scoring touch. It's all kind of coming together, and I think – you know, I, I take a lot of what I listen to from the opposing coaches that come in and play the Oilers. And Rick Bonus said it best um, before the game Thursday in Winnipeg. He said, listen, this team's playing free again. They have that look about them like they're playing free. Um, they're playing together. And that's a dangerous proposition when you're dealing with this team when they're all playing the same way. And it shows that their winning streak they're on right now. And they've uh, put a couple of them together. They have one little lapse when they went through Florida and Carolina, lost to Tampa, yeah. Florida, and and uh, the Hurricanes, and they'll have the Hurricanes here on Wednesday night, so maybe a little redemption there. But those are good teams. But I thought they, they let the one slide in Tampa, and then, you know, Florida, they just really couldn't seem to get it together in situations. And then Carolina, their first two thirds, although they had chances early on, they got deflated a bit. But their third period is where I think it sparked the winning streak they're on right now against the, the Hurricanes the last time they played. They came out and dominated the third period, made a game of it um, in a game in which they were down 4 nothing. And uh, I think that's carried through to the rest of the games they've played up until now. You know, I remember um, Doug McLean telling me once we were talking about coaching and what makes a good coach and what you need to do to, to be a good coach and be successful. And he, we're having this conversation for a couple of minutes, Louie, and then he just sort of stopped me. He said, you know what? This is what it comes down to. If you want to be a good coach, 
you got to have good players. When you look at the turnaround for the Oilers, is it is it is it just as easy just to say like, look, this is what happens when Connor McDavid is healthy? Like, are we over? Are we galaxy braining all of this? Like, Chris Knobloch has come in and done something profoundly different, and he has a magic wand and all this. Or do we just say like, look, McDavid is healthy again, and this is yeah. what happens to Edmonton when McDavid is healthy? Well, I think it's that's a big part of it, no question. Um, Chris Knobloch said himself, listen. <laughs> He came on board probably at the right time for this team to take a turn. I think everybody individually to a person understood that they weren't playing well enough and needed to do it by committee. And with Connor playing the way he's playing and really coming on, it didn't happen right away for him, but you could tell that he was getting better. But I agree, Jeff. I don't think – I think what happens sometimes with the coaching change, and in particular with this coaching change, Jay Woodcroft being let go along with Dave Batson, Paul Coffey, and Chris Knobloch coming on board as the head coach – what I think it really did was it made the players look in the mirror. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. I think when you look at nine coaches for Ryan Nugent Hopkins, I've been here 16 years covering this team in some capacity. It's been That's 11 for me, 11, 11 head coaches. I just think, you know, the, yep. the disgust in their faces, they understood that they'd underachieved again under a coach that I do think they respected a lot. And it, you know what? Sometimes it just, it, and that's why management, that's why Jeff Jackson, Ken Holland decide to make this change because they needed something. They tried putting Campbell down the minors. They tried shuffling some guys in the bottom six. You're a little bit handcuffed with the salary cap and with your, your, your uh, roster size limits. So the next move is you shake things up. And the big way you can shake things up is by making good kids. I'm not taking anything away from Chris Knobloch. I mean, he's been one of those coaches that's been talked about for years. He's getting an opportunity as a head coach in the NHL. He's getting his chance now. But what I'm saying is it all kind of came together at the right time. And I do believe the veteran players of this team and why you saw a real kind of disgruntled look on their face for a few days afterwards, they had to get over the fact that it had happened again and they needed to move forward. And yeah. You know what? Listen, I, it all came together at the right time. You're right. And there's still lots of things to work on for this team. They talk about it every day, but there's no question that they've all started to dig in a little deeper and find ways to win games instead of finding ways to lose games. I've got about 60 seconds for this one, and maybe it's not enough time, I'm gonna, but I'm going to try anyway. Uh, right. I believe the Edmonton Oilers are going to try one more time to make this work with Jack Campbell. I think eventually, maybe sooner than later, Campbell gets called yeah. up. And they're going to try to make it work because, just to be blunt, Louie, it's too expensive not to try to make it work, whether you're buying out or whether you're trying to package them off to open up cap space. Uh, is there a way back for Jack Campbell here? 100%. I think you see it all the time with players that go down, they find their game, get an opportunity to come up and find a way to contribute like they can at the NHL level. I don't think Jack Campbell's any different, and I agree with you, Jeff. He will get another chance. That's good. Uh, okay, we always we, we cheer for that person there, clearly. Uh, Louis, thanks as always. Uh, you're the best. Look forward to the conversations, and uh, you have a good rest of your day. Eyes on the Carolina game coming up in a couple of days. Thanks, pal. Absolutely. Thanks, Jeff. Take care. Uh, there is the great Louis DeBrusque um, from the NHL on Sportsnet. And tonight, uh, tonight there's a couple of doozies. Now, on our network, we've got a couple. Seattle faces off against the Montreal Canadiens. Also, the Carolina Hurricanes. Hey, Edmonton Oilers, here's your preview. They'll face off against the Winnipeg Jets. That should be a real good game. Uh, those are two teams that are really, really tough to play against. Carolina, historically, 
has been a real annoying team to play against. That's a that's very much a Rod Brindamore coach team. You ask anyone around the NHL, they'll tell you, man, if you can take points away from the Carolina Hurricanes, you've really achieved something because it feels like they're playing in your hip pocket the whole time. They're right on you. Uh, they don't they don't leave you any ice to skate on. That is an annoying team to play against. Um, and the Winnipeg Jets have been one of the early success stories of the season. And if you missed the news earlier, they've just, they've just re-upped with Nino Niederreiter. It's a three-year contract extension at $4 million per season. So those are the two we have on our network. Also tonight, Tampa Bay Lightning facing off against the Dallas Stars. Dallas is still looking for another defenseman. Dallas is very much in the conversation for Stanley Cup contender. Meanwhile, Tampa... I think we're starting to wonder and starting to ask questions. One thing we're sure of, though, tonight will be game number 1,000 for Victor Hedman. Uh, his Hall of Fame career continues, and he hits another milestone. Matt Deshane, who was in that draft as well, his 1,000th game comes up a little bit later on this week. Um, Victor Hedman, game number 1,000 for Tampa, and this might be... This might be awkward if things continue to sort of, I don't want to say unravel, but continue this way for the Tampa Bay Lightning. Um, but we shall see. Philadelphia Flyers facing off against the Pittsburgh Penguins again. You see John Tortorella's quote after the game against Pittsburgh on Saturday? We won because we have balls. Do with that what you will. The ballsy Philadelphia Flyers facing off against the Pittsburgh Penguins. Arizona looks to knock off another former recent Stanley Cup champion in the Washington Capitals. They've knocked off Vegas, Tampa, Colorado, St. Louis. Connor Ingram goes for another notch today against the Washington Capitals. And the Vegas Golden Knights face off against the St. Louis Blues. And that's it for me for the day. The uh, Merrick Show returns tomorrow. Thanks to everyone who took part in today's program both uh, in front of the camera, in front of the microphone, behind the microphone, behind the scenes as well. Back tomorrow, more of the Merrick Show. Tune in tonight, Rogers, Monday Night Hockey. Enjoy. Back tomorrow.